from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, using carbon offsets to alleviate poverty, climate change's $535 trillion debt, the man behind the Green Bronx machine, and 14 cool tech startups you need to know. We're venturing forth this week on 350. It's August 11th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me this week is, oh, look, it's Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Well, hello. How are you? I'm enjoying the calm before the storm, which is the you know reasonably mellow summer, although there's no such real thing as a mellow summer anymore, before the clock hits Labor Day and just all hell breaks loose in terms of travel and meetings and conferences. But, uh, you know, it's it's always great being in the Bay Area when no one else is. I am enjoying the blissful quiet of northern New Jersey because everyone is at the shore, as, I, as they call it here. And I am trying to catch up on movies. In fact, I saw one last Friday that you might be interested in, Joel. Did it have any former politicians in it? It may have. It may have. Um, I had a date with one of my friends, um, one of my friends who shares my sensibilities, because when we heard that the inconvenient sequel, the obviously the 10 years later to The Inconvenient Truth by our, our lovely ex-Vice President Al Gore, and of course, avowed climate avenger. Um, so I had, to, I had to go see it on the opening night out here in New Jersey. And I hate to say it, I hate to say it, Joel, but I was super disappointed. Uh-oh. Um, well, how come? Well, you know, I, I was sitting there thinking about the people in the theater with me, and, and it was predominantly, uh, I'll, again, I'll say it because I hate saying it, but I hate saying it. I'm middle-aged, right? So there was a lot of middle-aged people in, in that, in that uh, theater with me, and a lot of clearly people that, had, that believed already. And so I, I felt like the, the film, I was hoping that it would be uh, trying to talk to the if you will, the non-believers, the denialists. And I felt like it, it kind of missed that opportunity. And I also felt like it underrepresented the really good stuff that's happening in some of the cities and, and companies out, out in the world. Uh, um, maybe, maybe the timing of the movie, maybe the production of it was, sort of missed the cycle, but you know, there were allusions to Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement, um, but there weren't, wasn't that much information about the aftermath, right? Uh, and we, as you know, Greenbiz saw a flood, a sea of large companies, of mayors and communities all around the world saying, you know what, we believe and we are going to do something about it. And I felt like that wasn't very well represented in, in, the, in the film. Have you seen it? Yeah, I think you saw it a few months ago, didn't you, before the, 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 the unreleased cut? So back in the spring... Somebody from Participant Media, the production company that produced both of Al Gore's films, came up to the Green Biz audience and gave us a private screening about, you know, the 18, 20 of us in the office. And uh, so we were able to see the movie, but it was not the final cut. And I know that they have worked on it since then. And I can't remember the exact date, but it may or may not have even been before the 
the official Paris pullout. And as much as I love and respect um, the former vice president, would-be president, and appreciated the first movie, I too was kind of disappointed. In fact, uh, most of us in the office were. And here's why. And you sort of got to it. But it, it, was, it did not leave you hopeful. And, uh, you know, it was more doom and gloom. And yeah, there are solutions. And yeah, those solutions are always solar, wind, and electric vehicles. Great. And obviously important. But it didn't really give you a sense of all the amazing, exciting, transformational stuff going out there in the world of business. And I have to say that, you know, our litmus test is, is this group of badass millennial, mostly women, that we have in the office. And one of them in particular, I won't name her, was furious and at the movie and lashed out you know, in real time in front of this, uh, this producer and said, this is such a wasted opportunity. Uh, you know, to come away from this at this particular moment in history without a sense of excitement and hope about all that's possible is just short of a tragedy. Now, I will say that I've not seen the final cut. I know they've worked on it. Maybe they've put some, you know, somewhat more hopeful things in it, but that was our review back then. It wasn't two thumbs down. It was just sort of two very disappointed thumbs. Yeah. I, and I think I, I came back away with the same thing. I actually, my, I think my favorite part of the movie was the, the uh, visit to Georgetown, Texas, um, and the mayor there. And I don't know if that was in the cut you saw. Yep. Was it? Yeah. And I, I just, and I love the, the way that this, this gentleman talked about common sense, right? It's really about common sense and doing the right thing and, and the moral sort of responsibility that this generation has, and no matter how old it is, to the next generation. And so that was my favorite part of the movie. I also, at the end, at, at this cut, I did have quite a few um, sort of calls to action, um, some materials that they suggested that people share that were in the audience and, and lots of little web you know, social cues, right, to go off and be a climate leader, you know, so there was that, but, uh, well, don't get me, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are a lot of good scenes in there. There is fun scenes. There's really important scenes. Uh, Gore himself is a, is a very compelling, uh, protagonist of this as as he's been all along, but even, you know, the, the movie takes on some of his critics and that takes them on. It just shows some of the criticism that was, has been lashed out at, Ed Gore over the years and, you know, just has Fox News saying, you know, the, that hypocrite Al Gore who lives in a big house. I forget what it is, but, you know, the, the usual stuff. But, you know, I'm sure you had some sense of this too, Heather, that I wish, you know, I said, if only the audience knew what we know at GreenBiz, you know, we, we have this event, I'm just shamelessly plugging it into this otherwise thoughtful commentary <laughs> about Verge. But the reason I'm talking about our, you know, Verge conference is that that is about solutions. That is about the opportunities. That is about the incredibly exciting stuff going on in buildings, in transportation systems, obviously energy, but not just solar and wind, um, an entire rethinking of the grid and, and all the devices that connect into it and all the intelligence being embedded into it, the circular economy, which decarbonizing so much of of, of what we buy, the, and and this whole thing that we, we're calling the new carbon economy, which is about the opportunity to to the carbon isn't bad. We don't want to talk about a war on carbon. That there's a actually a lot we can do with it in terms of building things and sequestering it to make our soils richer. Anyway, 
on and on. Um, that wasn't in the, the movie, and that's the, as, as, as somebody put it in our team, lost opportunity. Right. But people are asking but, me about it, right? And it is giving me a chance to talk about all those things you just mentioned. So that that's a good thing. And honor is due, uh, Mr. Gore and, and the team at Participant, uh, for for continuing to beat the drum on this. It's just, it could be, in addition to the drum, there could be some trumpets, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And and a little bit more of a chorus. But you know what? Since I brought up Verge, let's just talk a little bit about that briefly. Um, Because you've been building out so many sessions for our for the September nineteenth to twenty first conference. Um, how's that going? It's going great. I have some terrific sessions on renewable energy procurement, and just and actually the, the the kind of gratifying thing is how many people want to talk about it now and what they're doing and share their their knowledge. And I'm talking companies and developers and and people in all on all sides of the transaction. So that. That track in particular, the renewable energy procurement track, is is shaping up to be super, super active. And I have the opportunity to go to the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance Summit, right moving into Verge. So I'm I'm excited to be going to both of those events on our behalf, and and I'm I'm really looking forward to advancing the conversation there. I've always I've also got some terrific sessions on urban transportation and mobility, uh, connected transportation and mobility as well. And uh, I'm working on some exciting sessions on how ride sharing, the, the ride sharing concept, right, and the, and the things that are happening in the private sector are impacting mobility centers in, in regions and cities around the country and around the world. So tr- truly, I it, just buttoning down the speakers in, in, in a month of vacations, been excited about the program, really excited. Yeah, and that REVA, that Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance event you mentioned, that's the Monday and Tuesday morning before the event on site in Santa Clara. Uh, just It ends just as the conference starts. That's this group that was formed by uh, Rocky Mountain Institute and BSR, WRI, WWF, to bring together uh, corporate energy buyers to help everybody do it better, bigger, more efficiently, and more effectively. And so each company isn't inventing its own wheel. That's going to be as three or four hundred uh, companies uh, that are and, and cities that are that are looking to, to procure large quantities, if not a hundred percent of their power from renewable energy. So that's that's very cool. I want to bring up one more thing that's something we're doing this year that I'm really uh, excited about and is already starting to catch fire. We just announced it a week or so ago. Is that we have created unlimited group packages that enable companies to bring as many employees as they want. Unlimited group packages for one price. It's five grand. You know, since the conference, I don't know, you know, is north of two grand per participant. So for the basic of the price of slightly more than the price of two, you could bring twenty or I guess two hundred. I don't know anyone's going to do that. But what's and what's important about that is is not just the great price, but what we're finding at Virgin, one of the reasons we're encouraging this is that companies are finding that let's bring uh, a team, whether they're from the same department or let's bring someone from supply chain, someone from procurement, someone from fleets and facilities, someone from sustainability, uh, you know, and bring the five or six or eight or ten people that uh, need to be working together and together can learn. And as they learn together, 
uh, can can maybe accelerate their collective progress within the company. So if you're interested in that, go to the Verge site. We'll we'll put a link to that uh, on the on the website for the unlimited group packages. It's a pretty good deal. And by the way, it's even less if you're an NGO or government agency. So uh, I was a little like, we're doing what? But um, check that out. So now let's get down to business. It's time for the Week in Review. So Joel, we uh, talked about my renewable energy procurement track uh, at Verge, but uh, so I want to bring up some news this week. So we've got a very fascinating announcement from the big cloud software company Salesforce, which is blessing the San Francisco Clean Energy Program. So the, the headline on our site, Salesforce blesses San Francisco Clean Energy Program. Basically, uh, this company, which is the biggest employer in the city, is going to opt in to the super green program that the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission created back in May 2016. So basically, that it's a community, community choice aggregation option, and the company will be procuring solar and wind directly over the local utilities line. So it's going to be transmitted to its two biggest high-rise buildings. The, the buildings encompass about 5,000 people. Biggest company, San Francisco, biggest company yet on this initiative. I think they have something like 75,000 smaller uh, small businesses and residential customers on the program. But a, a great uh, example of a completely uh, an option that might not have been available two years ago to a big, big corporate buyer. Um, and Salesforce is, is jumping in on this. And what's interesting also is, of course, in order to jump on this Clean Power San Francisco initiative that the city runs, it has to step away from the uh, incumbent utility, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, our good friends there, um, are you know looking at this and as they did with the whole uh, Clean Power San Francisco initiative, and must be a little bit concerned because when they're one of the biggest power users in it, in at least San Francisco, part of its district, defects, at least partly defects. PG&E still has the transmission lines, but this power itself will be coming over coming over those lines from this uh, Clean Power SF Super Green service. Uh, you know, utility has to be kind of concerned. Yeah, um, I, it's interesting. The person quoted in the press release on this is Suzanne DeBianca, um, and she's the chief philanthropy officer of Salesforce. Now, I did talk to Patrick Flynn um, via email about the, the specifics of the deal, but to have her be the one to announce this uh, kind of signals that one of the reasons they did this was so they could help others in the community get on board. So they're basically kind of trying to use their weight to make it a community thing. So I think that's part of it. And I, I, PG&E is, has very innovative programs in the area, but, um, and I'm sure, yes, I'm sure they're concerned. But uh, Salesforce made a, a pretty big deal of kind of sync, signaling that that was the public relations reason, if you will. Um, so I'm not this. sure I understand that. What, she, Mr. DiBianca, is the chief philanthropy officer and executive vice president for corporate relations. Why her? Why not someone uh, closer to operations or even the CEO? Well, so, and I have, by the way, their COO uh, talks about this issue a lot. So that's their chief operating office, officer. So so that's not the issue. The, you know, they absolutely are aware of this. He, he has been the source on their power purchase agreement announcements and so forth. But I think the significance of this one is that they consider it to be a moral imperative to do this. 
they're going to do it quickly. And the, and the, the city is trying to get, to get people moving more rapidly towards this goal. So it, it, it points back to, you know, the th- one of the things we were chit-chatting about is that the civic and municipal awareness that's arising around the shift to clean energy and and it's all sort of in everyone's interest to do this. So part of this this move by by Salesforce, which is known in the community to be very philanthropically inclined, you know, lots of social programs, volunteers, the 1% donates 1% of its product, 1% of its profits, and 1% of its time back to the community. And it was, it was founded on that model. I think that's, you know, I, I think that's the point like I said, I, one of the things I took away from it was that they were making a, a social statement. Yeah, just a little concerned about that because it makes it sound like doing this is philanthropy as opposed to good business, and and I'm not sure I like that signal. But I, I get, I understand that. But I think, I think, um, you know, there it, there is a little bit. They do pay more, more per uh, kilowatt hour on the service, um, but and you know what? The other interesting thing is the big sale, the big Salesforce tower. They haven't decided yet what they're going to do for that. Um, so that should be very interesting to see where they land on that one. But we did have this other story reflected something I think you wrote about a few weeks ago. This is from Sam Kimmons, who's the head of the RE100 uh, program at the Climate Group. That's the program focusing on getting 100 big companies to commit to 100% renewable energy, which after several years of this campaign, they now have reached 100 companies. I mean, that does show that there's just a lot of interest in this. And that's just the companies that have committed to 100%. And that doesn't include cities, I don't think, even some government agencies uh, that are uh, outside of cities that are thinking in these terms. But you've got, you know, a lot of this is outside the U.S. IKEA groups with three, BT, Mars, and companies like that. Uh, and certainly we've seen, you know, Apple and Google and Facebook and, and the tech community in the U.S. And, and I just think that this is a really interesting bandwagon. And this is why the, the aforementioned Reba is formed, because each, it's so challenging to do this when you have facilities across hundreds, if not thousands, of, of utility service districts and states, provinces, and, and nations that each have different, not only availability of renewable power, but different tariffs and laws and ability to to sell back to the grid or not sell back to the grid or, um, you know, all kinds of the complexity is is just still so unbelievable. And yet we've got these companies that are, in effect, all in. Yeah, we, we've got these companies are all in. And, and to your point, I, I believe there are companies that are not on this list that are have made that 100 percent commitment. And to the point of, of the sort of, I would say the it's still a very custom process, right? <laughs> so every site, every community, every state, every country has some different twist on this. You know, I was talking to the, the one of the operations fellows at Intel, Marty Sedler, right, about the on-site projects that they have going on. They've got something like 60 different projects in progress. And every single one of them has a different consideration from sizing to the available real estate to um, is the building leased, is it owned, and so forth. So certainly a very complex issue. But the thing, again, I take away from this is that there's so many options and people are now taking advantage of, you know, back to the Salesforce thing. That's a, that's a community choice, community solar programs are becoming another viable mechanism of, of getting there, depending on where you are. 
Well, speaking of the economics, uh, there was this piece we ran this week by James Dyke, who's a lecturer in sustainability science at the University of Southampton in the UK, uh, called Climate Change is Running a $535 Trillion Debt. Now, that's one of those numbers that, what? You've got to look at just what, what's that all about. And, and, and it's an interesting article. And it's one of these things that, as appropriate for a professor, is kind of academic in the sense that that $535 trillion is looking at uh, lost opportunity, at, about, at the negative impacts of climate change, um, at, at discount rates, all kinds of things. Um, but it is interesting to see you know, how uh, we're beginning to you know, really put some numbers on this and to frame, in effect, the opportunity much more so. And this goes back to what we were just talking about with um, in an inconvenient sequel, uh, that there is uh, both a, a huge downside to climate change and, and a big opportunity to get it right. And that's something that's just not being talked about. So I, I like this article, even though it's, uh, it's pretty economically geeky, but it does show a little bit how do we, how do we think about the macroeconomics uh, impact of what's going on here. Yeah, and, and he talks about the balancing act necessary, right? Because And I, what, actually, one of the other things I loved about this was it kind of stated the, the, the problem of these emissions in a very simple way, you know, okay, it's not just the amount of stuff we're pumping into the, into the atmosphere, it's the rate, right? It's that the earth can over time stabilize and absorb this extra stuff, but not right now, it's not happening fast, you know, they can't do it fast enough. So we need to help the earth <laughs> get into balance. I think that's part of the, part of the argument that, that he's making here. I also, you know, just to put that number that you cited before in context, the entire U.S. federal budget is $4 trillion. So that 535 is like, whoa. I mean, yeah, it's like one of those gulpy, gulpy numbers that makes people think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, worldwide, you know, what, what's the opportunity? It's a very simple statement of the argument. Um, this particular article is, it, it, it's geeky without being super, super technical if you will. Well, let's move on to one other piece that uh, I want to highlight from this week, which is about something not completely different, but certainly gets off the energy and climate thing for a minute, which is, uh, it's called Connecting Health, Safety, and Human Capital. It's by Mike Wallace, uh, who's the managing director, and Kate Lasko, who's an analyst at a consultancy called Brown Flynn, which is based in Cleveland. And uh, I'm really glad that they're bringing this to the fore, but this is looking at how worker safety and well-being uh, connects with productivity and employee engagement and loyalty and and how that rolls up into overall corporate performance um it's it's based on an organization called the Center for Safety and Health Sustainability that was formed uh, back in 2011 to look at this in advance not just the the understanding of this but also some how do companies disclose it? What are the metrics that they can add here to their existing corporate sustainability reporting to look at employee health and safety metrics? And that's an interesting exercise. And and I can just already sort of hear some of our chief sustainability officer friends who are listening to this saying, oh, no, something else we've got to measure and report. And uh, yeah, and but that's also, you know, taking something that's been kind of squishy in the past in terms of how do you account for it? How do you know if you're doing well? Uh, how do you communicate that? And bringing it to the fore and also, you know, for investors and others 
that want to know, they say, well, these, you know, this is how you measure uh, high-performing companies. This is at least part of it. The human capital piece of this, uh, I, I like where this is going. Yeah, there were, two, and there were, two, for me, two things that I, I came away with when I read this article. One was clearly the very simple, you know, statement. You know, if if you're not concerned about the well-being of your people, in in factories and in the supply chain too, by the way, right? Out out there in the world, doing work on behalf of your company. If you're not concerned with those people, how can you be truly sustainable over time, right? Because if, if you can't sustain, uh, keep those people engaged, if you can't keep them um, interested in working for you, if, if they're not going to be advocates of better practices throughout your company, then then how could you possibly get your 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 mission accomplished? So that, you know, so kind of it's the well-being thing and then it bleeds over into the engagement side of it. You know, you want these the, these people contractors, employees, supply chain folks, whoever they happen to be, everyone that's involved with with coming together for your company, that human capital, you want them on board with your mission and you may need to make sure they're engaged. And one of the things you can do to make them engaged is make them feel safe, make them feel like they have a, a, um, a job over, the t- over time and that, and that someone cares. So, And by the way, this is a topic, at least part of this is a topic that we're going to be It'll be the subject of one of the summits, the four summits we've already mentioned, the Reba Summit that we're going to be having at Virgin. There's three others, uh, one on uh, urban mobility and one on the circular economy. But the fourth one is on healthy and adaptive buildings. And so getting to the, the wellness part of the, of the building and, and workplace and uh, how do you start to make that more than just a nice to do, but really make that part of the equation. And certainly having metrics that you should or need to, or are actually being asked of you by um, investors these days um, may help move that along. So we recently ran a book excerpt from a new book by a fellow named Stephen Ritz, who, if you haven't heard of, you need to know. Stephen founded and, and leads an organization called the Green Bronx Machine, based obviously in in the Bronx, but more specifically in one of the poorest, most crime-ridden, un- unhealthy congressional districts, I guess, uh, in the United States. And where he has gone in, working in schools to help these young kids find their way in life through gardening. Growing plants, growing food, understanding nutrition, understanding what happens when you create something and using that for math and history and I guess even physical education. Stephen has spoken at three of our events over the past few years and (laughs) I don't think I could even possibly do him justice in terms of the presentation that he does, the energy, the excitement, the humor, the humanity that he puts into these things, where he will blow through literally 120 slides in 12 minutes, uh, but with this fast-paced spiel that is so good and leaves the audience always standing and cheering. And so uh, why are we talking about this? Because uh, he has a new book out. Uh, It's a really cool book. I really encourage you to read it. We read an excerpt, and we'll link to that. And associate editor Anya Hollemeiser recently spoke to him, and uh, here's a taste of that conversation. 
What made you start Green Bronx Machine? What was your journey like? So my journey with Green Bronx Machine has been one of simply trying to teach children to learn to love themselves. You know, my job is to love children until they learn to love themselves and to inspire them to grow something greater. And that could be in any context, socially, emotionally, career-wise, to think beyond the confines of our own neighborhood and to imagine an inclusive, brighter, happier, healthy world for all of us, all of us, of which we ourselves are a part of and contributing to. So Green Brown's machine was born out of the belief that we are all Americans, Mexicans, Dominicans, African-Americans, and this is our moment in that a community that has long been written off and forgotten and is traditionally not invited to the table, could build our own table, set it, and feed ourselves. And literally by accident, after almost 30 years of teaching, was introduced to the Green Movement. And a simple accident, a happen chance incident of receiving a box of daffodil bulbs um, to some challenged kids in a challenged classroom in a classically failing school resulted in an incident that became the impotence that went from a movement to a market. How does food security and getting kids into growing food for their school, how does that feed into the school health? And then how does that then feed and, and create community health and resilience? Well, realize we are the least healthy county in the poorest performing school district, in the poorest congressional district in America. So food insecurity overall is an absolute mess. On top of that, when you look at what the food options are in this community, those are appalling. And while the media loves to call this community a food desert, I think it is a food swamp. We are bombarded with bad choices and everything here is a mess. And what I mean by that is it's a manufactured edible synthetic substance. And, you know, Coke or Pepsi is not a choice when you don't have access to clean water and drinking schools. So teaching children to grow food indoors with 21st century technology aligned to common core and next generation science standards is connecting them to 21st century career and college opportunities while enabling them to feed their bodies and minds and communities with healthy, fresh food where they need it most in school. But when you bring people around the table, stakeholders around the table, to regarding an issue that is non-negotiable, and that is food, that is a game changer. I like to say 50,000 pounds of vegetables later, my favorite crop is organically grown citizens, graduates, members of the middle class, kids who are going to college, kids who know where their food comes from, children who are asking for basil and spinach and salad for lunch instead of, you know, chips and soda. And most importantly, you know, for my kids, they will never be well-read if they're not well-fed. So giving children healthy, nutritious food when they need it most in school fuels their minds and bodies for performance and better behaviors. And that's what this is all about. It is win, win, and win. In your book, you mentioned that um, through this program, the kids also had a chance to have lunch with their principal. And um, in my mind, I thought, you know, in the Greenvist standpoint, that's almost like an, a company employee feeling uh, more empowered to make um, and, and introduce sustainable decisions into the organization and then being able to talk to their CEO about it and really feel like they have a connection. Um, so how do you feel that this, um, your program and that food health can uh, play a part in sustainability at large? Regarding sustainability, you know, it's interesting because 
I think sustainability is great, but I think that's the entry point. I like to talk about rectification, regeneration, and transformation. Because after 30 years of marriage, if you ask me how my relationship is with my wife, if I said sustainable, well, that's good, but it's not great. So I like restoration, regeneration, and transformation. And the notion of having student stakeholders and teacher stakeholders and citizen stakeholders involved in our school community has absolutely been transformational. So much so in year one, by growing food in school, creating exciting, engaging community-based opportunities for students, teachers, and parents, we reduced behavioral incidents and had a class time by over 50%. In the second year, we increased performance on passing rates on New York State exams by 45%, including English language learners and special needs students, wholly inclusive. And just this past March, our school will receive the best New York State quality review we've received in years. So for me, it's culture eat strategy for breakfast. When people are looking the same way and feel that they have a say in the program and can get involved, amazing things happen. I like to say that we are our own solutionaries. What inspired you to write your book, The Power of the Plant? Wow, what inspired me to write my book, The Power of the Plant? I feel it's a story worth telling. So I feel that teachers change lives and behind every successful student, every successful person, there is one kind, compassionate adult. And in these very turbulent and inflamed, chaotic times, I want people to know that it is absolutely one possible for one person to make a difference, not only in their lives, but in the lives of everybody. And it starts by just having passion, purpose, and hope. So while the book is part manifesto, part personal, part prescriptive, what I really want to do is inspire people to get out there and make epic happen and give voice to teachers because teachers change lives. What, would it, what will it take to scale this kind of thinking within schools? The movement is here. We have gone from a market to a movement. And thanks to people like Joel Matauer, who actually continued to be my champion, you know, four years ago, three years ago, we were in one school. Today, we are touching 5,000 schools in the United States. We are scaling across Canada. We have gone from Canada to Cairo and, you know, Colombia to Dubai. So the notion of healthy living, of healthy food, of food security is absolutely critical in every community all around the world. And now more than ever, we need to respect our soil and refresh, refresh our soil and treat our farmers with dignity and respect, with the same dignity and respect in the way we refresh our computer screens and precious laptops. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. And thanks for the inspiring conversation, Stephen. Expedia became the first Fortune 500 company to invest in several projects orchestrated by a nonprofit startup called Carbon Offsets to Alleviate Poverty, aka COTAP. Like other organizations that manage carbon offsets, COTAP offsets carbon dioxide emissions, those of either individuals or businesses, through activities such as tree planting or, or protecting forests. But it also offers another unique benefit. All of its projects are specifically chosen for their ability to address economic inequality in rural communities. 
all around the world. Joining GreenBiz 350 to chat about COTAP's mission and the significance of the Expedia deal is founder Tim Whitley. Tim, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. What triggered this twist on, on the carbon offsets uh, challenge and, and opportunity? Yeah, so there, there were multiple uh, inspirations to start COTAP. Um, I saw it as a multifaceted uh, opportunity on the demand side and the supply side. And then there's been a lot of reinforcing uh, inspirations to keep it going. Uh, and so they kind of, you know, it's been a while now, you know, about uh, six years that it's been, it's been live. Um, and so you know, it all goes back to UNC Business School when I, I attended a seminar by John Hatch of Finca. Uh, it, it was mostly about microcredit, microfinance, but, you know, in that I got an idea of just how many people there were living in, in rural areas of developing countries uh, living on a dollar a day. And it's what that meant in terms of hard choices between healthcare and food and education. And so and then another piece of that was I also attended a seminar uh, uh, led by Ben Henneke of, it's, it's called TIST, it's an international tree plant. This is a huge acronym, but and it, you know, I got to see how transparent uh, they were about uh, doing a tree planting carbon projects and, and paying uh, individu individuals um, who lived in rural areas, like I, I believe this was a Kenya project, they, they paid them uh, for planting trees, they paid them via cell phone, and then they had lots of data to verify where the plots were, where they could go verify, right. um, and they were showing us GIS maps. Hmm. And so I was like, well, that's a fit for rural areas of developing countries. And then, and then came along the uh, emerging precedent at the time, it was more recent at the time, of Kiva, which is a micro-lending website, yep. um, that they basically addressed a, a market failure w with a market-based tool uh, for the sake of alleviating poverty. You know, I, I didn't think the world needed a, just another carbon offset provider. It really did seem there was a, a multifaceted, you know, a hole in the universe where COTAP should go. You mentioned Kenya. How did you pick the countries you're going to focus on? I mean, wh which countries are you focused on and, and how did you identify them? Well, so at, at the beginning, um, I reached out to a, a lot of different, you know, trying to figure out how to approach the problem. Uh, a lot of uh, carbon project developers, that, you know, they didn't want to spend time uh, hooking up with a with a potential funding source uh, that is unproven. And so, you know, I, I pounded the pavement and that was a, um, you know, I had mixed results. And, you know, really one of the first uh, projects that uh, that said yes was, um, it was it was Khalil Baker and his community, it's now known as the Community Carbon Project in Nicaragua. Um, and so it was uh, certified under the Plan Vivo uh, carbon accounting uh, mm -hmm. standard. and. You know, when you do a startup, you're supposed to generally, you, you know, you can, you can go on trying to design and, and all these considerations to, you know, to launch. You can, you can go, you could do that forever and not ever launch. And so, you know, some of the advice I got from, you know, actually the founder of Kiva, Matt Flannery, was just to, you know, just start and just get to the first transaction. You know, get, get a website up, get a project, and... See if anybody will do it. And then, you know, it, it was like the real problem, you know, what I'm trying to, what I was trying to 
solve is the demand side, not the supply side, because because you know, the supply if you fix the demand side, then the supply side is always going to love you. And the the supply side, it, the market in general, the voluntary carbon market is way oversupplied. It has been forever, and it's just it's um it's a difficult you know space. And so and so there was no need to add uh, projects beyond a certain point for the sake of supply. I don't. Kotech not not was not conceived to be the Walmart, or, you know, of carbon markets. It, you know, every everything for everybody on the supply and demand side. Uh, we just we want people who are who are motivated above and beyond by our poverty mission, which is on an equal footing of of climate action. What makes the Expedia investment unusual, right? So, and I think it was for a specific event. So, will the relationship be ongoing? Yeah, so that 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 I think usually when you see a press release, it's not for. Um, you know, this was for a modest amount. It was for a, a thousand tons uh, ish, and you know one thing one thing that's unusual about it is you don't see you don't see a intermediary uh, doing a press release for that for that quantity. Another thing you don't see is um, usually there's a, a huge company that has a, you know, a, a carbon, a full-time paid carbon team or a full, full-time paid uh, corporate social responsibility team that's working on the footprint and, and, and they're partnered up with, with a giant um, you know, carbon consultancy and that, that, those are usually the ones that you know, use this exclusive multi-year, this big, you know, massive um, Press release about how many households are going to be reached, and it's you know it's about who benefits um, the press release, and it's about how they benefit and how much they benefit. And what's typical in a lot of um, carbon deals and press releases is you is you know it's very common for the the project to be located in a developing country, and for the for the press release to talk about benefiting communities. But it's usually they benefit indirectly through and jobs are created usually, um, and and local communities are supported uh, with with jobs. But it, but it, you don't get into info about how how much of the carbon money is shared with uh, the local communities, and so that's one thing I, I feel is different. Um, it's about you know Cotap in general and about this deal is that you know we can say you know Cotap's happy to happy to share that we we pay projects nine dollars per ton. You rarely see that in a press release by an intermediary, and we know that the Plan Nouveau standard requires projects to share a minimum of sixty percent of that with local communities. So you know this the math is you know on a ton per ton basis. Uh, for every ton that Expedia offset, uh, they create they're creating five dollars and forty cents of income for the world's poorest people. Um, so, so, just to go back to the big, you know, this big company that just gave you a lot of attention. Um, you know, are you going after other other larger companies now? I mean, will this be a strategy shift for your, your organization? You know, the basic answer to that's not really in terms of my, my efforts to chase down and convert, um, you know, large companies. A lot of the 
and this gets back to my um, what, what I said previously is like you know I didn't launch Cotap just because I thought the world needed another carbon offset provider. Um, you know the gold rush has kind of already happened on that for the biggest companies that have asserted climate uh, neutrality. Um, a lot of them have partnered up uh, into multi-year contracts with these large carbon consultancies, and you know a lot of them do high volumes and they're very sensitive on price. And you know the whole story about indirect co-benefits for local communities is good enough for them. It's a good story. It's good enough for them. It's not good enough for Cotap. We're more into revenue sharing. And, you know, we can't be in certain situations. Um, it's hard to compete on price because if you're if you're in, in the game for the sake of addressing inequality, you know, you want to. There's different ways to interpret that. Cotap's interpretation of that is, you know, I, I would think you address economic inequality by giving people money and sharing the carbon revenues. And so like if you're going to do that, well, then you need to talk about how much you're paying projects and how much the project organizers share. And so if you start going down on price beyond a certain, at least you know, with, with land-based projects where there's a finite uh, number of hectares of forest to be protected over time, or there's a finite amount of land on which trees can be planted over time. And you're talking about, you know, decreasing price for a volume-based discount, you can only go so low beyond, uh, and beyond a certain point. Um, it's, if you have a model like Cotaps where, where it's about delivering a strong price and a lot of revenue sharing, then below a certain threshold, there's, it becomes a permanent uh, missed opportunity for poverty alleviation. Right. And so, you know, you can't create five dollars and forty cents in community income per ton if you're only able to command and deliver four dollars per ton for the the retail price of the offset we, we do have a few dialogues going on but uh, and, and we'll see what happens but uh, what we're what we're trying to do is to um really where we see a, a company making a, a commitment for neutrality which is not already partnered up uh, and, and it involves something beyond, you know, climate change as a single dimensional environmental problem or carbon as a single dimension environmental commodity, then we reach out. Well, good luck on making those connections. Thank you. And um, thank you for joining us here on Green Biz 350. One of the rights of summer here at Greenbiz Group is picking the finalists for the Verge Accelerate program that we have at our Verge conference that comes up in the fall. And we did that again this week. And I here to talk about that is the Director of Strategic Programs here at Greenbiz, Shauna Rappaport. Hi, Joel. So I know, Shauna, you don't pick these yourself. This is a group effort and it's a community effort. But tell us, first of all, a little bit about Accelerate, and then we'll talk about who the finalists are. Yeah, happy to. Well, you know, Verge Accelerate is a program that has been a cornerstone of our Verge events really since their inception. I mean, to the extent that Verge is about accelerating the clean economy and focusing on the technologies and the innovations that are such a key piece of that, um, this program, which is really about the early stage entrepreneurs, um, has really been a key piece of that. So Accelerate gives ultimately 14 selected finalists the opportunity to have two and a half minutes to pitch from our main stage. We um, we 
keep it quick moving and 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 um, the the audience is engaged and it's really about giving these these early stage entrepreneurs an opportunity to elevate their solutions in front of our entire live audience and those tuned into the global live stream. So when we actually do this at the Verge Conference the week of September 18th and 19th, 20th, 21st, uh, they'll be what doing uh, seven of these uh, in two different sessions and tell talk a little bit about what happens and and how people win. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the Verge Accelerate Showcase takes place as part of our integrated keynote program. We'll have two sessions. We have of our 14 finalists, seven will go on each day. And as I said, they each get two and a half minutes. So it's a short amount of time and a small number of slides to tell their story. Basically, you know, the market opportunity that their solution is addressing and and what the opportunities are um, for really advancing those solutions. And we'll have in each of those two Accelerate uh, sessions, we'll have two industry experts that will be on stage with me sort of offering commentary while after the pitches are complete, the audience has the opportunity to text in their votes. Wow, two and a half minutes. It's kind of like like a TED talk if Ted were a chipmunk. <laughs> That's our new tagline. <laughs> so talk a little bit about who you're excited about. So who's some of the who some of the finalists are? Yeah, well we have, you know, every year the pool of of nominations grow. I think we, we received just about 100 this year, but really top quality uh, nominations and, and really from around the world. Um, we're always looking for and selecting for a, really a diversity of solutions, so both where folks are coming from, but of course in the Verge spirit, not just energy, not just built, you know building efficiency, but really a, um, a Verge mashup of, of different kinds of solutions. So Let's see, a couple I'm excited about. I mean, we had a number of solutions, um, or nominations rather, sort of in our what we called our circular economy track. So um, bioplastic recycling is doing sort of industrial scale recycling of bioplastics. We've got uh, the renewal workshop, actually a couple of solutions that are focused on sort of circular economy plays in the fashion and, and products industry. Um, I'm really excited about mogul traffic management. He submitted a fantastic 60 second pitch video literally sitting in traffic, driving in his car, talking about their solution, which can, communicates uh, between vehicles and, and in order to decrease traffic and, and accidents. Um, so yeah, our, our ultimately our 14 finalists really span the Verge spectrum of energy and buildings and infrastructure, um, transportation, and um, you can check it out online. So to even participate, you needed, as this uh, mogul guy did, to to submit a 60-second video. That's what the community voted, and then the Green Biz team sort of looked at that and picked some of the others. We also have some industry experts and others that all weigh in on this. So what happens uh, if you win? Well, uh, I'll just share quickly while we're talking about the pool of nominees. You know, one of the things that's been really interesting is noticing just how the program is growing over the years. And we're um, just this year actually established a partnership with a great global organization called F6S. F, that's the letter F, number six, S. Um, and they're really working to become sort of the global hub and platform for for startups, not just clean tech focused. And by partnering with them and actually having our application process go through their platform, we really saw a significant increase both in our Verge Hawaii conference and Verge 17 coming up in, in global nominations. I mean, we truly got submissions from every corner of the world and, and fantastic submissions at that. So um, that's right. We put the 35 selected semi-finalists. We put those six, their 60-second pitch videos on the Verge website. The last three weeks, we've been generating buzz. We got over 36,000 
votes over the last month. Wow, I had no idea. That's amazing. Yeah, truly. Um, There may have been some bots. I think there were two startups where we saw a slightly disproportionate number. So they either had their family and friends on standby to press vote every day, or they they got tricky with some programming. But either way, we can tell that there were a really, just really strong engagement in the community voting this year. So you didn't answer my question about what happens to the winners. What happens next? So we are less than six weeks out from from Verge 17. Um, We just announced and communicated with the finalists this week. Um, We'll be slating them, you know, working to accommodate their schedules and, of course, selecting to put a diversity of of solutions on each day. And on the Tuesday and Wednesday of Verge 17, we will be inviting those entrepreneurs to pitch from the main stage. We're, We're delighted to be partnering, sort of deepening our partnership with a number of incubators and accelerators, including EEX, Incubate Energy, um, Organ Best, specifically around some programming that we're going to be doing in the startup showcase space, which is an actual physical space in the Verge Interconnect um, Expo Hall, where it's kind of like a pop-up co-working space where we'll be inviting the startups to kind of talk about their solutions, um, or their companies rather, um, and inviting investors as well to come. And we'll be doing some curated programming there to help create real value and connect investors and startups in hopefully some productive ways. Great. Well, this is always a fun part of doing Verge, which is itself fun. And I know it takes a village to do this, but you've pulled that village together. So thanks for leading this. Uh, Shauna Rappaport, Director of Strategic Programs. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And you can always contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director, Stephanie Joyce. We'll be back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. So until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.